Please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, going all the way to 516, and we are going to hear from God today in this passage, as we do every Lord's Day, and I am excited about it. If you are using the blue ESV Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on, beginning on page 912, going on to 913. The title of our sermon is Money, Malevolence, and Multitudes, and the key words for our worshipers in training are generous, lying, and healing. I realize that's a little confusing that you just have a list of six words, but uh, it sort of is what it is, I suppose. So Money, Malevolence, and Multitudes is the title Generous, lying, and healed are the key words. But kids, if you hear any of those words, you can just make a, a tick mark. Um, as you listen, and then parents, you can ask your children um, how many times they heard those words during this sermon. In the opening chapters of Acts, we have observed how the resurrected and exalted Jesus continued his ministry on the earth through his Holy Spirit whom he poured out on his church on the day of Pentecost. We've seen how that spirit empowered and emboldened the disciples to speak boldly concerning Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, even in the face of threats and persecution by the religious leaders who had murdered Jesus and were now growing increasingly irate by his followers who had this renewed sense of purpose and zeal. This morning I want to show you another characteristic of the early church that grew out of the spirits uh, having been given to them by the vindicated king of the universe. And that is generosity. The early church was made bold by the Spirit, which we saw um, last time when we were in Acts in chapter 4, 23 through 31. Now, beginning in verse 32, we're going to see that he made them generous as well. But we'll also see in the passage before us that while so far the problems for the church have largely been described as outward issues, problems arising from without the church, outside of the church, today we will see problems begin to arise for the early church from within the church. And yet, despite that, we will see God continue to demonstrate His commitment to His cause and to His people. So let's read uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. I'm going to read all the way through 516. Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 
Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Well, I want to consider three things with you this morning, um, and they will more or less map on to the three sections, three main sections of this passage that I just read. First, in verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4, we will see that it was a generous, generous spirit that permeated the early church. Second, in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, we will see that there was, however, a need for pruning in the church, as two among them demonstrated a high-handed rebellion against God, lying to the Holy Spirit. And third, in verses 12 through 16, we will see that despite or perhaps even through this pruning, God continued to bless and to grow His church. So look with me in the first place at verses 32 through 37 where we see the generous spirit that characterized those disciples in the early days. 
Luke tells us that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The result of this unity was radical generosity. The effect of the Spirit on the early disciples was that no one claimed anything he owned as his own possession. It was not in his mind exclusively for his own use. But instead, they all held everything together in common. And we see that the apostles were ignoring the Sanhedrin's ban. Remember at the, uh, in, um, uh, the end in, in verses 19 and 20 and 22, the Sanhedrin had told Peter and John, stop talking about this man Jesus. Well, they were ignoring that exhortation. And the result was that grace was upon them all. And there was, so there was great unity, great generosity, and grace that filled the life of the early church. Such that, Luke writes, there was not a needy person among them, which is astounding. Jesus tells us that you will always have the poor with you, right? We're never, deal, we're never getting rid of poverty in the world as a whole until, well, until he does when it's all said and done. But among them, among God's people, there wasn't a needy person among them. Luke says that the wealthy among them bought and sold lands and houses. They laid it at the apostles' feet who then distributed it to any who were in need. And then he names one man in particular, Joseph or Barnabas, who he will become an important name later on in Luke's account here in Acts. But he introduces him here as a very generous man. He says he was a Levite from Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he gave the money of the cell to the apostles to distribute. The picture that Luke has painted for us here in these verses regarding the early church is uh, very similar to what he had said back in chapter 2. Specifically in 44 and 45, he says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So there's a radical generosity permeating the church. And I think it's important here that we understand this is not advocating for some type of political socialism, right? That's often a misunderstanding that arises out of this passage because it's one thing for a government to seize an individual's possessions and then sort of indiscriminately uh, distribute that out as they see fit, whether the individuals who receive the the funds need them or will do anything useful with them. It is another thing for individuals, because of a gratitude in their heart toward God, to purpose in their hearts to give voluntarily of their possessions to those who are in need. And it's important that we grasp that this wasn't just that they lumped it all together once and for all. We see that clearly back in chapter 2. There was an ongoing nature to this. 
They did this regularly as needs arose. They were active in caring for people as they came to need assistance rather than simply ensuring that everybody always had the same amount. There wasn't a person who went without in terms of actual needs. This text here is actually a strong indictment against something like socialism and against the church in our present day. The church in America has sadly allowed government to grow in its scope and its power such that many Christians and many churches have allowed themselves to become less and less generous and influential regarding the needy among them. The average person in America, uh, including professing Christians, gives less than 2% of his or her income to charitable giving, including religious causes. And so I think we need to let this text challenge us. Wherever you are this morning in your own journey of generosity, how might Acts 4 challenge you this morning? So you might do it this way by asking yourself this question. Am I marked by this kind of radical generosity? Generosity by its very nature moves us beyond our intentions. Right? Generosity is not merely longing or wanting to be a generous person, but actually being a generous person. When you look around the room, when you think about the people in the seats next to you, when you think about the needs of our broader community, are you, do you have a desire to meet those needs, and are you moved by that desire to give sacrificially that others might receive what they need? You know, Peter, as we'll see in a minute, Peter makes plain in his rebuke to Ananias, Ananias was not required to give everything that he owned. In a very real and meaningful sense, he was, he was free to do with what he had what he pleased. He could have kept the land, he could have sold the land and kept the proceeds. And so Luke's description here in chapter 4 is not meant to place an undue burden on God's people to say that you must sell everything that you have, place it in one big pot so that we can just redistribute it to everyone in the church. So that's not the point. The point is this, are we marked by such a radical, radically generous spirit that when needs do arise among us, that we are all champing at the bit to give and to care for each other. And I just want to say how grateful I am for the generous spirit that is among us here at Redeemer Baptist Church. It is amazing to see the ways that you care for one another. The ways that you have cared for me and my family personally at times. I am grateful beyond words for what God has done and is doing among us in that regard. But I do want to challenge you, if you are here and you aren't 
giving regularly to the ministry of this church. If you aren't sacrificially thinking of how you might be serving your brothers and sisters in Christ here, ask yourself why. Because when we think about how much money we give to the church or what we do with our time to the church, the the issue must be one of sacrifice. Whatever percentage it is, however much time it is, the issue is are you giving joyfully and sacrificially? A great rule of thumb in order to determine if we are giving sacrificially is this. Do I have to live differently than I otherwise would because of my commitment to being a generous person? Are there things I can't do, places I can't go, items that I can't buy because of how much I give, both of my money and my time? Of course, this doesn't mean that you can't do anything, that you're homebound, homeless even, because you've given it all away. But are you generous? I think as a whole we are, and I'm grateful for it. But it is important that we each take stock regularly. Am I being generous? And so that's the first thing that we see here in this text is that the early church was generous and we should be too. But look with me in the second place at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 where we see the problems that started to arise in the early church. Right? The, the contrast is set well here. At the very end of chapter 4, you have this man Barnabas who... Uh, has a, a plot of land, he, he sells it, and then gives the proceeds of it to the church. And then immediately, you have a man, Ananias, who on the surface does the exact same thing. He has a piece of land, he sells it, he gives the proceeds to the church. And yet, we're told by Luke here that what Ananias had done was a surface-level type of generosity. It was a deceptive type of generosity because he had conspired together with his wife to deceive how much they were actually giving. Their intent seemed to be to deceive the apostles, to deceive the other disciples so that they looked as generous, perhaps as generous as Barnabas. Maybe that is what motivated Ananias' selling of the property and giving it up. But Peter tells them, you're not lying to, to man. You are lying to God. Well, we need to look and kind of understand how, why he says that, right? Because they, they sold a piece of land, and then they kept the proceeds of some of it. They kept some of the proceeds for themselves, and whatever was left they gave to the church. Now, I think initially when you first read this passage, it's not exactly clear that that is a lie. Why does Peter launch into Ananias so quickly and immediately with such certainty? And besides, was it really was it wrong for Peter or for Ananias to keep back some of it? If he sold the land and went to give some of the proceeds to the church, did he have to give it all? It doesn't seem to be the case. The the issue is clear that he was lying. Peter tells the man that before and after the property was sold, the land and then the proceeds were his to do with as he pleased. He wasn't under any particular constraint to give any of that particular property or any of that particular 
uh, income from that property to the church. And yet he accuses him, of, accuses him of lying to God, the Holy Spirit. And so what was it that was dishonest about this? Well, that's confirmed when we look, beginning in verse 7, at Peter's interaction with Sapphira. He asked her point blank, did you sell the field for this much money? Ananias told me that this is how much you sold the field for. And she says, yeah, that's how much we sold it for. And so Peter says that you have tested, once again, he says you've tested the Spirit of the Lord by lying to God. And so the problem isn't that they sold a field and gave some of the money to the church. The issue is that they sold a field, lied about how much money they made from it, and then pretended like they were giving all of the money they made from it to the church. They were free to do with the field whatever they needed to do, whatever they wanted to do. But once they had decided to lie to and test the Holy Spirit at the behest of Satan, Peter tells us, they had committed a grievous, high-handed sin of rebellion against God. And it leads to something drastic. You know, there are a lot of commentators want to sort of turn this into a legendary account and deny that this actually happened because of how severe it seems to be. Both Ananias and his wife Sapphira are struck dead when they hear Peter's words of judgment pronounced against them. And what results from that is great fear that comes upon the whole lot. And the people outside of the church, as we see in verse 13, people were afraid to join them. And so the message for us, I believe, is clear. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about briefly that Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the message for God's people today from this is that God cares deeply about our hearts. And so the love of money is a vice that we must all desperately seek to flee at all costs. God cares deeply about the truth, and he cares deeply about the way that we view and use our money. God calls us to be radically generous with all that we have, and he abominates pretense and pretending that we are something that we're not. In other words, being stingy is bad. Apparently, pretending to be generous is worse. And so, if we find ourselves this morning, or ever, perhaps in response to Acts chapter 4, the end of it, to say, yeah, I need to be a more generous person. Make sure you find a way to actually be more generous. Don't find a way to look like you are more generous. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with God. If you're not a generous person, that's a problem. But it's a place to begin with honesty, to say, no, I'm not. You're not going to fix the problem by making yourself appear as though you are generous without the requisite attending sacrifice. True generosity comes with a cost. And it's important to note here that generosity looks different from one person to the next. 
Barnabas' generosity led him to sell a field and to give the entirety of the proceeds to the church. Ananias, if he had actually been generous, could have sold his field or not, and he could have been clear with Peter up front that he was only giving a portion of it. There's no reason to suspect from this passage that if Ananias had done that, if he had sold the field, gotten the proceeds from it, told Peter, hey, I sold a field, here's part of what I made, I don't want to give it to the church. There's no reason to suspect that he would have been met with anything but gratitude and a smile from God if he had simply been honest about his gift. But it was his intent to deceive that led to his death and his wife's death. And so, what you do with your money really, really matters. At the end of the day, it's God who determines if you've done right with it or not. It's not me, it's not the elders, it's not the deacons. You don't answer to any of us, ultimately. We answer to God. We're not fooling Him. And so, are, are you generous as, a, as an individual, as a family? Good. Don't pretend to be more generous than you are. But pray that God would continually work in your heart to make you more and more willing to part with more and more of your possessions in order to see his name proclaimed and his kingdom advanced in the world. Before we move on to the last point, I want to make a few observations about the effect that this judgment had. That this striking dead of these two people you know, in Acts 5 here, we are, we are introduced to the first nominal Christians. They don't, in fact, believe, but they would have been considered a part of the early church. And how does God respond when they reveal themselves to be unregenerate and completely at war with Him in their hearts? He removes, removes them instantly, drastically from the membership of His church as it were. You know, like Jesus, when he was asked about the tower that fell on those in Siloam, he says the point of that isn't to gloat over the fact that there were sinners than you who are still alive. He says, you need to hear about that and you need to repent. And the same is true here. Right? It would be a colossal mistake for us, like it would have been for them, to hear of Ananias and Sapphira's deaths and think, wow, those guys are sinners. Thank God I'm not like them. The response to this by the early church was fitting. One of fear. And so it should be with us. When we hear of God's judgment coming upon sinners, or perhaps in 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 a case of church discipline, right? When, when we see judgment in this world, we should respond fearfully, not arrogantly. God cares about the purity of His church. And we should too. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't 
seek purity in an arrogant, harsh way. But we should be humble. should be humbled by the death of these two individuals. Well, look with me in the third place briefly then where we see Luke, he, he zooms out, right? So there's a lot of zooming in, zooming out that takes place in, in this narrative. He kind of, in our passage today, he kind of began big picture. Everyone's uh, selling what they have to care for one another. No one has a need among them. He zooms in. I got this guy Barnabas. Got this guy Ananias and his wife Sapphira. We see what happens there. We, he zooms back out again. And we see that the apostles continued to perform many signs and wonders, healing the sick and the infirm, and they were casting out unclean spirits. Right? At the beginning of the passage, in verse 33, they're proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and here they are continuing to perform wonders and signs, and those things are attending one another in the apostles' early ministry. And these wonders have two effects, and I'm just going to sort of mention them briefly, and then I want to make several points of application here. Uh, some who see all of this taking place are alarmed, and they want to avoid mixing with the apostles. See that in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people did ha- hold them in high esteem. And yet, others flock to them. Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I was astounded by that when, as I was uh, reading through Acts in preparation for um, not just this sermon, but even the, the, the whole series as a whole, and I, I came upon verse 14, and I thought, what a wild thing to happen and for Luke to include. God has just struck two people dead, and yet he continues to build his church. It was, it's an amazing thing. Even in the face of persecution, threatening from without, Acts chapter 4, and perversity threatening from within, Acts chapter 5, God more than ever continued to work through his apostles to build his church. And so, what threats do we face? What threats from within? What threats from without? Whatever they are, God is building His church. And we can trust Him and know that He is with us. What can we learn from these, this passage and, and, and the ones before it? Chapters 4 and and five together. What, what can we learn? I want to close with a few directives for us. And I want to address three, uh, roughly three groups that likely are, are with us in the room today with one directive for each. First, if you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, so to the unconverted, the non-professing person with us. One, I'm glad you're here. But two, I, I, want to, I want to offer this warning. God is not to be trifled with. We may deceive man, but you can't deceive God. So are you living in rebellion against God at this moment? 
I pray that you would stop, that you would repent, that you would put your faith in the Lord Jesus before it's too late. You know, Ananias and Sapphira did not wake up this day and think, today I will breathe my last. And yet, the pallbearers were at their door. And so whether you are young among us or wiser among us, if you are living in rebellion against God, if you have a hard heart, why are you waiting to be reconciled to God? Especially for the young people here with us. If you've not made a profession of faith, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not trusted in Him, why not? Is it because you think you shall have all the time in the world? You want to perhaps enjoy the vain pleasures of the world while you're young because you know later on when you're older you can repent. Well, I want you to hear the Puritan George Swinnick on the matter. He says, Will this lust, this moment's pleasure, make amends for the loss of him who is eternal life and a river of inconceivable and unchangeable pleasures? Oh, how dreadful a sound will the word depart make in your ears. Yea, what a deep wound will it make in your heart. Whither do they go that go from God? He goes on, Do you think that it will not fill your heart with sorrow? and cut it with anguish to hear the blessed God, the incomparable God, say to you, Sinner, farewell. Farewell forever. You shall see my face no more. Believe it, these words will sound more dolefully in your ears than you are now aware of. They will be a passing bell to all your hopes and joys and comforts and delights. They will be a knell to toll the death and burial of whatsoever may be refreshing and reviving to you. Of all your ease and rest and liberty and peace and health and strength and friends and relations and all that may in the least conduce to your comfort and happiness. Ah, sinner, little do you know at the present what it is to lose this God. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, or for the rest of us who do, and we have people in our lives who don't know Jesus, let us beg the Lord of heaven that he would cause souls to rise from the grave and fly to him. We see secondly, in closing here, a second group There were needy people in the church, and there were needy people who were cared for in the church. So if you are weak, if you are needy, this is the place for you. Come to Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, trusting that your Lord will care for you in your pitiable state. If you have needs, your provider will answer them according to his own wisdom for your own good. And so, if you're needy, come. And I would ask that you would grant us 
His people the privilege of sharing your burdens with you. Let me just speak for the elders for a moment here to all of you and for the deacons. You're not a burden to us. You're not. So come. Don't suffer in silence. And to all of us then, lastly here, if we've been moved by the generous Spirit of God, let us commit ourselves that there wouldn't be a needy person among us. Let it be told on the, the highways and the hedges. Savannah is a rough place. Effingham County, maybe it falls apart. But Redeemer Baptist Church, they care for one another. So if you were to lose it all tomorrow, here's a good way to think about how to be generous. If you were to lose everything tomorrow, would you want others to be as generous with you as you have been with them? My prayer is that unity, boldness, and generosity would mark our church. And I think they do. But my prayer is that they would continue to mark our church more and more, every day, every week, every month, every year, for decades, even centuries to come, if the Lord Jesus were to tarry. Amen.